Good morning. It's good to see you here at Grace Redeemer Church. You know, it, it occurred to me that if this is your first time here, you're wondering what in the world is going on. John's welcoming Peter back, and Donna's hoping everyone's glad I'm back. If you're not glad I'm back, please don't share that with anybody. Um, but uh, I've been on the pastoral sabbatical for a good chunk of the summer, and uh, this is my first Sunday back in the pulpit. And it might sound funny, but time out of the pulpit actually serves to make me, when I'm looking uh, ahead to get back in, like I was this past week, it makes me think more, um, more and more so, what in the world am I doing walking into a pulpit with a responsibility to preach God's word to God's people? And uh, I think that's a good thing, especially when it drives me to prayer, because I realize that this is far more than a merely human endeavor, and it drives me to more and more boldly over the years as I become more seasoned to plead with you as God's people to be praying for me and Josh and anyone else who has this task of climbing into the pulpit and uh, proclaiming God's word to you. This is a supernatural endeavor, and none of us should feel like it's the most natural thing in the world. None of us should feel like this is just what I do on Sunday mornings as part of my job. So um, pray for me, even as I grow in my appreciation of God's sustaining sufficient grace for this task. Um, when I said, I wonder what in the world I'm doing here, maybe you have thought the same thing, but hey, you had three months to say something to the leaders of the church, and it's too late. I am back. Um, but I'm also mindful that it's likely that I'm going to have a brain cramp or two. Uh, on sabbatical, uh, most of the weeks I would be sitting in uh, my son's red beanbag chair or on the couch reading books, and that's a very unimpressive thing to observe. It's quiet. Words from a page enter through the eyes, are processed through the brain, and things are going on. Nobody notices anything. But when the reverse doesn't happen, everyone notices. The brain searching its database for the right word, sending the signal to the lips and the mouth to make the right sounds. And it, it, it struck me this week as I was uh, getting back into the swing of things, talking to people about ministry planning and, and staffing and all that, that uh, I was struggling to remember first grade vocabulary words like uh, that word strong. I couldn't remember strong. So um, there's no training camp for preachers. Uh, we're going we're to have to just press our way through the rust, and I uh, hope you're okay with that. Uh, turn, me, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. It's a brief passage we're going to look at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. There are enough there to hopefully share. It's on page 865, and I'll be reading there in a minute. Uh, with a few more weeks of summer left, I decided, you know, it didn't make much sense to introduce something entirely new, and so I wanted to connect to uh, what Josh presented to us as a congregation from the late spring into the midsummer, eight weeks uh, of a sermon series called What's Love Got to Do With It? And I um, am borrowing the sermon series graphic, even though we're not going to stay camped in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which is where Josh was for all eight weeks. But I want to connect to some of those themes. And first, let me point to some background. Uh, you don't have to turn there with me, but you can. John chapter 13, verse 34. This was Jesus' last 
evening with his disciples before he was crucified the next day. And he had just washed their feet, and he shares this in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not too hard to figure out what the theme here is. And the, the, the idea that the, this little mini passage begins with is command. By the way, this is where we get uh, the name Maundy Thursday. At the end of Lent, Holy Week, Maundy Thursday comes right before Good Friday. Maundy Thursday is when the Lord's Supper was uh, celebrated by Jesus with His disciples. And mandatum from the Latin is simply the word for command. This is characteristic of what Jesus shared with His disciples as a last word. I command you. And it was all summed up in love. What's our conclusion when we put a couple of pieces together? If you're a follower of Christ, if you use the label Christian to apply to yourself, then Jesus himself says you should be a true lover. That's who you are. And in the Bible, God reveals to us what our identity is if we've been united to him by faith in his son, Jesus. He never says, I want you to become someone you're not, so strive to get there. He always says, this is who you are because of my son, now act like it. Bring into consistency every part of your life with who I have already made you to be. And that's the sense of Jesus saying to his disciples, I command you, love one another. They've been given the capacity to do so by virtue of their connection with the ultimate lover himself, Jesus, lover of our souls. So if Josh explored some of the various aspects of love from 1 Corinthians 13, patient, kind, does uh, does not envy, um, doesn't keep any record of wrongs, what I'd like to do over the next few weeks is to peek under the hood a little bit to try to answer these kinds of questions. What motivates a true lover? And what is a true lover really in love with anyway? What's the root desire of the heart? Today we'll see that just like Olympic athletes, true lovers seek glory. John chapter 5, starting in verse 41. Listen carefully. These are God's words. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray again that you would reveal your glory to us. You've revealed it most fully in the person of your Son, Jesus. You've revealed your glory through the Word written, preserved for us in in the Bible. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit here among us, in us, you'd give us an even richer taste, glimpse of that glorious presence. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We'll ask three questions to uh, help us dig a little deeper into this passage. 
First, what does seeking glory mean? In our passage, a little bit of context, Jesus is rebuking religious leaders who are after him because they're intimidated by his, the attention he's getting. He's, he's receiving all of this public acclaim because of his miracles, because of his teaching with authority that's different from everyone else's teaching. He threatens the religious establishment. Imagine a third-party candidate who comes out of the blue and, and takes the lead over Hillary and Donald. I'm sorry for bringing up our collective fantasy in the middle of a worship service. Uh, I'll take all responsibility for all of your daydreaming about such wonderful developments in our election cycle. Um, but the, the powers that be from on both sides of the aisle would be threatened, right? Because their status quo, the, their, their relationships, the, the way things happen in Washington would be threatened. Well, this is what's going on in Jesus' ministry. And his key question is in verse 44. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is pointing out here that every single one of us is a glory seeker. It's not a question as to whether we seek glory. The only question is, what kind of glory do you seek? And maybe more personally, whose glory do you seek? Is that for yourself or that of another with a capital A? The word for glory in the New Testament is the uh, word, Greek word doxa, and it uh, tends to have the, a sense of splendor, sometimes brightness as in luminescence, um, sometimes honor and and, and greatness. The word for glory in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word kavod, and it uh, has more of the sense of weightiness, sometimes literal um, weight, the substantialness of an object has glory. Uh, very often it's used metaphorically in contrast to um, vanity of vanities, things that come and go, poof, like smoke. Something with glory lasts. It doesn't get blown about. It's there tomorrow and the next day after. So, seeking glory biblically involves chasing after ultimate significance and purpose and meaning, in and of itself a marvelous thing, what God calls us to seek after. But things go wrong. We'll look at that uh, in, a, in a few minutes. When we talk about pursuing glory, these last couple of weeks, we think of the Olympics, don't we? And I know you've heard uh, quotes from Chariots of Fire from myself in years past, and I think from Josh as well, but um, when we watch Usain Bolt yet again dominate in a 100-meter dash, um, we need to go back to um, Chariots of Fire based on the true story of athletes at the 1924 Paris Olympics. Maybe this will be a little bit of a, a twist on some things you've heard before, but um, th there's a contrast in the story based on true events between Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell. Harold Abrahams in one scene is getting a rub down right before he steps out onto the track to run the 100-meter final. And he's speaking with a childhood best friend named Aubrey. And he says, Aubrey, something that I have, have, have admired uh, about you forever is you are content. And the implication is Harold doesn't have what Aubrey has. And he goes on to say this, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. In one hour's time, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor. 
four feet wide with only 10 seconds to justify my whole existence, but will I? I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. A lot going on here. What's he saying? First, the most obvious is he's known the fear of a loser's status. He's been there. Everyone's been there, right? He's known the fear of walking off the track without a medal, second, third, fourth place, whatever it may be, whether it was in second grade or or at the trials. He's known that fear, and in a sense, he's saying, I'm not really afraid of that. I've been there. But the fear of winning, that's a little bit different. Why would he have fear of winning? It's the fear of stepping onto that highest level of all three levels, gold, silver, and bronze, of hearing the national anthem of your own people, of receiving public acclaim, of of anticipating in our country a ticker tape parade down Wall Street, and knowing already before you even run the race, it will not be good enough. It won't satisfy. It will just prove to yourself that you're chasing after emptiness, chasing the wind. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. He knows the gold medal won't satisfy. He knows it won't give him the meaning that he longs for. And I think that that's part of the story of Michael Phelps 2.0. Have you followed a little bit of of Michael Phelps? If you've tuned into the Olympics, especially during the first week, you you probably couldn't avoid it, right? We, We think back to London. Michael Phelps retired. He was done from swimming. He was tired of all, the, all that went with it. He had 22 medals, 18 of them, by far already a record, gold. But in retirement, very quickly, he lost his temporary purpose and significance. All of life about training, all of life about the next uh, big meet, all of life for four years oriented towards the next Olympic um, venue. Michael Phelps lacked weightiness, glory, real glory, because glory lasts. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't need to be renewed every four years. It doesn't need to be proven again after you've already proven. You and I are also glory seekers. The only question is, what kind of glory do we seek? The glory we think we can generate and for which we'll take all the credit in the world because I did this. I worked my butt off, I sacrificed, I got up early, or the glory of another, with a capital A. Seeking glory so often involves status that comes from the approval of other people. Uh, Acceptance, belonging, real love, affirmation. Here's a picture, a beautiful picture. When a toddler is doing whatever mundane this little two-year-old is doing on the carpet, she's constantly looking towards mommy. Does mommy approve? Is mommy looking? Is mommy paying attention? Can I get mommy's smile? There's something beautiful and healthy about that picture, isn't it? Because um, on one hand, if she didn't care, we'd wonder what socially is, is awkward and wrong about this child, right? Just in her own little world. And if mommy was too busy to even pay attention, there's something dysfunctional about the parent's affection and attention towards the child. So together, we see this beautiful affirmation, this, in a sense, lowercase seeking of glory by the child. But fast forward a couple of decades, at least, maybe not even that. 
in a picture of uh, you or I, you spend too much time in the mirror. You spend too much money buying all the right magazines and shopping at the right boutiques. You spend far too long before meeting your friends for dinner in the closet, in front of the mirror, back to the closet, agonizing because you just can't get that look to make the right statement, and then it's God's fault for not giving you the features to enable this clothes that you bought from the magazine for the right look to make the right statement. That glory-seeking isn't so healthy. It's the longing for other people to think so highly of you in admiration. Same with sulking or getting angry because you struck out or dropped the pass or lost the game. Same with blame-shifting when you don't get that raise or aren't offered that position on the team or invited to take part in this committee. Why? You so desperately want the glory of self over the glory of another. This is what Jesus is pointing to in his opponents who happen to be the most religious people in that society. And this is what Jesus would say to us. You're chasing after the wrong glory. How does it go wrong, secondly? A little bit farther under the hood. We go back a a verse, verse 43. Jesus says this, I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. That statement helps us understand how self-glory-seeking so easily goes wrong, gets off the right path. Jesus knows, he's saying here, that people, the crowds, the masses, uh, will tend to accept a person who comes in his own name because... That kind of hero, idol, popular figure would fit the people's self-glory-seeking mindset. Here's what I mean by that. Someone shows up on the scene, makes a big splash. Could be a religious leader. Could be a, um, uh, the hot new musical star with the right look and the right voice. It could be a stud athlete who suddenly makes a splash, a Gary Sanchez for you Yankee fans, who comes in his own image. I'm not attributing this to him. Who... Um, who wants to make a name for herself. Well, in reaction, self-glory-seeking people love it. They eat it up. Why? Because they get it. That's what they are longing for. That's, what, that's uh, the, the fulfillment of their daydreams, of, of their um, trying to program life to achieve that kind of fame, glory status of other people's approval, the crowds roaring in delight, because the star's way of life, the star's look-at-me approach is what the people want for themselves. That's the way they do it. That kind of leader, idol, star fuels the people's hunger for self-glory. You know, that's why we tend to befriend people who are like us, we avoid people who might challenge our way of thinking and, and living. We, we just want affirmation, thank you. Tell me in your unique and cute and subtle and charming way how awesome I am. And now tell me again. That's why, that's why you're my friend. I want to hear that from you. And, and we push away people who tend to um, show up and tell me that there's something wrong with the way I'm living. There's something wrong and flawed with my choices, with my wisdom. Those people are pushed away, ignored, not invited. That's also why your decisions, even if you 
you say you've prayed about it or you've talked to other friends, so often are not wise, God-honoring, excellent decisions for your life. And so, I prayed about it. I have a peace about it. Means you have a peace and you've given God a few seconds here and there in moments of prayer to interject His thoughts, but before you could even hear Him, you're off affirming your own self-glory. You have a peace because you came up with the idea and you think it's awesome. <laughs> I, I, I sought the wisdom of friends means you mentioned your excitement to your friends. You went on and on about how you're longing to take de- this path or, or go this way. And the only thing they could say without bursting your bubble and ruining the friendship is, wow, that sounds great. I am so happy for you, which is code word among friends for you are awesome. And there's nothing else I could tell you because that's what you want to hear. What you're doing is you're shaping God and people around you in your own image so that self-glory is fueled, is supported, is propped up. That's why Jesus won't accept the praise of people who are motivated by self-glory. He sees right through them. They don't want Jesus for Jesus. They want Jesus for His magic tricks. They want Jesus for His public approval to be leveraged for political gain. They want him to use his, his charisma, his authority, his connections to overthrow Rome, to free Israel from tyranny. Whatever earthly desires they have, he's a means to an end. And before we criticize the Pharisees, the crowds, the people who don't get it in the Gospels, do you and I realize that we do the same thing to God on a regular basis? perhaps on a daily basis. We see Him as a tool. We too often put God in a little box on the shelf labeled Sunday morning only, and then we take Him down when we need something, and suddenly we become prayer warriors, you know? Uh, we, we develop sores on our knees because we're not used to bowing down before the King on a regular basis in dependent prayer because we need something now. And so we put, our t- uh, we, we put our time in. We might even use God as a guilt reduction therapy. You know, f- you feel better because you, you, you came to church, you could have done better things, other things. You read the Bible, and then over time you put God in your debt because you've served, you've given, you've sacrificed, you've thought of others, at least for a little window, and now it's time to call on the favors. God owes you. God, it's time. Here I am. Haven't heard from me in a while. Too many friendships are also motivated by self-glory. Maybe another angle on our horizontal relationships. Uh, giving attention to and spending time with friends who do something for you, who connect you with the right crowd, perhaps who provide you with romantic possibilities if you're single, who make you feel good with their attention back towards you. So there's this sort of symbiosis going on. And if that sounds like a largely younger generation or single thing, Adults aren't immune. Uh, Social circles tend to gradually narrow over the years and exclude people who are difficult, who are less compatible, who are less likely to invite us back to reciprocate. Um, One-way needy relationships tend to die of neglect, intentional neglect. But, But here's the thing. 
isn't the gospel the ultimate one-way relationship? A perfectly holy and loving God who would condescend to love sinful, rebellious men and women and children like us? Isn't the gospel the ultimate one-way relationship that doesn't make any sense in which God would have every right to say, you know what, have it your way. You don't want me, I don't want you. Isn't the gospel a beautiful picture of not neglecting those kinds of relationships, but embracing them, inviting them so that we can taste personally a picture of this grace that is so undeserving, that cannot be reciprocated. We could never love God back nearly as much and as perfectly as He loves us. When Jesus asks in verse 44, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The only obvious, the only possible answer is you can't. You can't believe. You don't believe. You cannot do these two things at the same time. Place your trust in, believe um, in the one and only God who has revealed His glory most fully in Jesus, who is God the Son. You can't believe in Him and what He's done and seek and accept glory from one another instead of and above seeking the glory of God because Jesus is the glory of God. He is the most significant of all. He is the weightiest, most valuable, most beautiful. And and you might find yourself, you would find yourself in one of two categories, I think, as I do. On one hand, you'd say, well, I I do believe. Other people in in the community of faith have come alongside me. They've confirmed that, that I do believe in Jesus, that I do understand this gospel, and yet I'd have to admit to my shame that all too often I seek and accept the glory of one another. I'm looking for approval from other people. I'm striving for status among my friends, my peers, my coworkers, the society at large. And God would say, reconcile this paradox. Act like who you already are. Others of you would say, you know what? I'd have to admit, I seek other people's approval. I'm all about chasing after the glory that I see out there that I want for myself. And I'm down in the dumps because I just can't seem to get there. And the Word of God is helping me to realize that I don't truly believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't place my faith. I don't trust God to provide me with significance, love, weightiness that will last and that will satisfy the answer to either predicament, whether you are a believer and there's just this dissonance or whether you admit fully that you chase after a human glory and you don't believe, the solution to both is the same. We go there lastly. What can we do to change? First, a little bit more unpacking of this all-too-universal human condition. If you're all about self you will never get Jesus. He'll never make sense. You'll always wonder what's so special about him because he'll seem like the ultimate loser. Someone who had victory in his grasp and let it slip away and actually gave it away. Someone who had the ability to take advantage of all of his strengths, approval ratings, intelligence, 
street smarts, wisdom, supernatural power, and yet chose not to wield any of that in the face of his enemies, chose not to wield any of it, 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 so it would seem, for the benefit of the common people who were asking him to do something, and yet he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, silent. If you're all about self, you'll disdain Jesus for his weakness. You'll look down on him for his humility. You'll scratch your head at what seems to be total passivity. And you'll move on to chasing real heroes, quote-unquote. And most often, you will cast yourself in that role because you desire self-glory. If you're all about self, you will not want to seek this glory that comes from the only God because that glory, the glory of a crucified king, does not look like any other glory that you've ever chased after. You won't be able to see that this offer to heal you, to make you whole, to raise the dead is the essence of love and is the promise of real glory itself because sin has made you sick. Sin deceives and blinds and leads to death And only when you admit that you have no chance at glory, that all of your attempts have fallen by the wayside and all of your future attempts are not even worth trying, can you see, begin to see with eyes of faith that the glorious one himself, Jesus, who defeated death on your behalf, offers you resurrection life to live with him, to reign with him. In his book, Peculiar Glory, author and pastor John Piper writes this, The human heart must be set free from its blinding love affair with the praise of men and must will the will of God. That is, the heart must be conformed to the peculiar way God glorifies Himself in history and in Scripture. Through majesty and meekness and strength and suffering, the wealth of His glory in the depth of His giving. There's a lot there to chew on. You know, Harold Abrahams was chasing self-glory. Part of him already already knew it was futile. He already feared before he actually won the gold medal in the 100-meter race that it wouldn't be enough. And in contrast, this is really the, the centerpiece of the movie, Chariots of Fire. In contrast, Eric Liddell, the Scottish Christian missionary who refused to run in the 100-meter final because though he had qualified, it was to be held on Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. In contrast, Eric Liddell could say, I'm not running. He, he ran the 400 because someone else gave up their spot, and he won it, by the way. But he could say at the time, I, I've oriented all of my training, all of my schedule, all of, all of that suffering for this race, but I'm not running it because God's more important. Liddell was free of any fear of insignificance, of drifting off into irrelevance. He was free of needing the praise of other people because he already possessed, by faith in Jesus the Son, the perfect approval of the Father. Liddell knew he had glory, weightiness, that a breeze called the Olympics could not destabilize. It's just a race. He was free to win or to lose. And it's best expressed, it's expressed in the best known words in the movie when he said, I believe, wish I could say this with a Scottish accent, it would sound better. 
I believe God made me for a purpose, but He also made me fast. When I run, I feel His pleasure. He was free to win or lose. Neither ultimately mattered because God was already pleased. As we close, I want to bring us back to that picture I painted of a little toddler looking back over her shoulder constantly, seeking the glory, seeking the approval of a, of a mom. Spiritually, if we apply that to our relationship with the Heavenly Father, sometimes we get a little skittish. You know, I, we, we don't want to sound like uh, our Christian life is about earning God's approval. We don't want to sound like um, we're, we're supposed to impress God and get His attention, but we can't escape the, the core reality here in, in these verses that Jesus is rebuking these people, these religious people, for not seeking enough the glory of the Father. How do we put those two pieces together? Here's the heart of the gospel. And if you have heard this before, you need to hear it again, just like I do. Seeking the glory of God absolutely does involve experiencing His delight, His favor, His acceptance, His approval. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater in the interest of preserving um, Orthodox Christianity from the Bible. Seeking the approval of God is all about del- uh, receiving His delight, basking in His love, knowing that you are perfectly approved by Abba Father, always. Seeking the glory of God absolutely also does involve impressing the Father with the right behavior, pleasing Him with the right words, earning His favor with the right thoughts. But in your self-glory-seeking ways, if you think that that is something you can accomplish, you're dead wrong. Emphasis on dead. Because the gospel at the same time says you could never do it. But Jesus has done it for you. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should live. Jesus thought every righteous thought and never an evil thought. Jesus spoke all righteous and wholesome, shalom-bringing, life-giving words. And Jesus' behavior never involved a sinful decision, a wayward action. He was the perfect son, and the gospel says, yes, you need to be all about seeking after, chasing with pursuit the glory of the Father, His approval, His delight, His acceptance. He rejoices over you with singing, the prophet Zephaniah says. But the means to that end has nothing to do with self. There's everything to do with Jesus. If there's anything to do with self, it's empty yourself of anything you thought was worthwhile and then fill yourself up with Jesus by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit. A follower of Christ is a true lover who seeks the glory of God by trusting in that ultimate majesty and meekness strength in suffering, the wealth of His glory and the depth of His giving. Jesus gave it all. Will you receive it by faith? Let's pray. Lord, I am nothing. You are everything. I have nothing that's glorious, that's weighty, that's valuable. You possess all riches. 
end. Lord, I pray that uh, for myself, for every person here, that you would grant us strength by your Spirit to chase after that which cannot be lost, which cannot fade away, which cannot be stolen, which is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, accessed by faith, not by our strength, not by our wisdom, cleverness, skill, but by our humble dependence on what Jesus has done and who he is. We pray this in his name.